in front of clients, he said, Georgie, I'd like to have sex with you. That, you know, that's not appropriate. And the partner said, oh, shut up, as if you don't want to sleep with her too. He's like, you should be comfortable with me touching you because I am legally blind, so you'll need to be guiding me. Once he asked me to lead him to his court bench and grab my ass the entire way there. Sent me a really strange message, like, you know, like the, the F word that was kind of garbled, and like I texted back and I like corrected it response to me was, is that what you want? <laughs> I was like, what? If I was wearing a necklace or something, he'd use that as an excuse to try and touch my chest. So he'd be like, that's a nice necklace and basically essentially assault me. This issue is not about men or women. This is about all people being treated equally and being treated with respect. I'm Kate Allman, and you're listening to episode two of Off the Record. This is a podcast series by the journalists at LSJ that aims to shine light on dark issues within the legal profession. Welcome back to everyone who listened to our first episode, and thanks to all those new listeners tuning in. My regular co-host, Claire Chaffee, has been on holidays this month, so I'll be hosting this episode alone. And before we get going, I'd just like to warn everyone that this episode discusses some pretty traumatic material around sexual harassment and even sexual assault. So please tune out if you are worried that it might be triggering for you. Today, I'm talking about an issue that is affecting all industries, but until now, the legal profession has remained starkly quiet about sexual harassment. You might expect that lawyers would report lower rates of sexual harassment, giving their years of training and familiarity with the legal system. I mean, after all, Rule 42 of the Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules explicitly warns lawyers that sexual harassment can constitute professional misconduct. But it turns out lawyers are not immune or innocent to this problem and increasing numbers are standing up to call it out and say, hashtag us too. Earlier this year, the International Bar Association conducted a survey of 7,000 lawyers around the world asking about the prevalence of sexual harassment and bullying in the legal profession. 25% of lawyers who took part in this survey reported that they had been sexually harassed during their careers. That is one in four lawyers. Those international results were made public in October, but the IBA has done us a special favour here at Off The Record by collating responses from the 1,000 Australian lawyers involved in the survey and revealing them exclusively to LSJ for this story. The data shows sexual harassment is occurring at an even higher rate in Australia than the rest of the world. Approximately one-third, or 37% of Australian lawyers, reported experiencing sexual harassment, and that is one in three lawyers. Here's what Michael Tidball, CEO of the Law Society of New South Wales, had to say about the figures. The data is, quite frankly, uh, condemning. I think, Kate, that there has to be an open conversation, so we as leaders must be undefensive. We have clearly a problem. We've known for many years that we have a problem. We, for a period, had compulsory units as a part of CBD, which sought to educate the profession. The Law Society of New South Wales has always, dating back to its beginning, defended the rights of all, and that is reflected in its motto. The issue of sexual harassment is absolutely about fundamental 
rights and the Law Society must be a leader in defending fundamental rights. This issue is not about men or women. This is about all people being treated equally and being treated with respect. Now, we can talk about stats all day, but such an issue tends to only hit home when you talk to real people who have been victimised and suffered sexual harassment at work. When you hear stories like the anecdotes played at the start of this podcast, as you heard from those anecdotes, I spoke to a number of women in researching and producing this podcast. They came from really different workplaces and backgrounds, and some have even risen to high ranks in the profession despite the adversity they faced. Leah Marone is the Vice President of the Australian Women Lawyers Association and a passionate advocate for equity and the advancement of women in the profession. However, even Leah can personally empathise with the powerlessness that victims of sexual harassment endure. As a junior solicitor in her early 20s, Leah was targeted by a manager who was about 25 years her senior. Here's a few sections from our interview and a warning. Some of this material is quite distressing and may be triggering for some listeners. Probably would have been early 20s, so he would have been, at the time, late 40s, I suppose. Yeah. He used to try and touch my chest, so he'd be like, that's a nice necklace, and basically, essentially assault me by um, touching my chest like I would push his hand away. Um, he'd made comments if I was ever wearing a dress or a skirt, so I started wearing really bulky, old kind of man suits mm. um, and just feeling extremely uncomfortable. One night, he bought one of those onesies, like an animal onesie, and he jumped into my office wearing the onesie, making, making suggestive comments, and so it got worse. Bullying got worse. Um, a whole heap of comments were made. It's... Um, and we went to an industrial relations conference and that's where things got really bad. He was being really rude, very drunk, um, and there was another female um, who he was very good friends with who was also being making all these lewd comments at me as well. One of the judges that I appeared in front of regularly saw this behaviour and was really concerned for me um, and actually chaperoned me home to make sure that I got home safe. And, and I'd reported how I'd felt to a lot of people at the Crown at the time, senior people, women and men, who'd all said, oh, that's just him, he's got bipolar, um, you know, he'll blame it on his mental health, he's done that before. I'd run across the other side of the street if I saw him. I was so terrified. Like, the, the way that that bullying mind, and it made me doubt whether I would, should be a lawyer and doubt my own competence, even though I was getting... QC writing to the Crown Solicitor saying how good my work was. I spent thousands on physio bills because my neck had kind of like seized up. I'd, oh, no. I'd, yeah, I, had, I developed seriously bad IBS, which I have still have, mm. and that really, really appeared at that time in my life. Yeah, so it's just like it really affected my health, my mental health. Leah's story is distressing, but not unheard of in the era of Me Too and Time's Up. These hashtags have encouraged an historic outpouring of men and women sharing their stories of sexual harassment at work. Until now, lawyers remained relatively silent about their own Me Too stories. But the whisperings are growing louder. 
Here are excerpts of a few interviews from other women I spoke to. You may recognize the first voice as Georgie Dent, a journalist and editor at Women's Agenda. Georgie started her career as a lawyer before she later became a journalist. And when she was in her 20s, Georgie earned a place in a highly regarded law firm in Brisbane as a summer clerk, which is basically a paid internship for law students to gain experience working in a firm over the summer holidays of their university break. When Georgie and a friend of hers were both placed in the practice group that was the very last on their preference lists, they knew something was up. What, the way he was treating us was the way he always treated um, female summer clerks and he always got female summer clerks because he picked them on the basis of their photos. Uh, and then when we arrived uh, and met the partner for the first time, his sort of opening remark was, oh, this is terrific. I choose my clerks on the basis of their photos and you two are both much better than the photos suggested. And I think we both sort of looked at each other and wondered, did he actually just say that? You know, our physical appearance was a major point of conversation for him. He was in his 40s and he was married and he had children, um, but he was also, you know, he, he did make a point of saying that his wife and kids were away, so if we wanted to come back to his house, he'd love us, you know, to come and have a swim with him and, you know, wow. not necessarily bring clothes. And, I mean, it was very brazen. I mean, he said to me at a client event, in front of clients, he said, Georgie, I'd like to have sex with you. The more junior lawyer who was, he was actually a senior associate, but he sort of interrupted and said, oh, excuse me, that, you know, that's not appropriate. And the partner said, oh, shut up, as if you don't want to sleep with her too. Well, I, I mean, I just felt like I cannot believe this is actually happening. But also I thought, does he actually think that I would want to sleep with him? I next spoke to Shriosi Deb, who studied postgraduate law and is now a paralegal at Mark Lawyers in Sydney. Just under a year ago, she was searching for a part-time role to gain legal experience in Sydney. She saw one ad that looked promising, advertised on her university jobs board, it was looking for a clerk assisting a senior lawyer in Sydney. It was only after she applied for the role that the red flags started to appear. And I came across this ad that repeated across all these websites and it was for a senior lawyer and he was looking for a student who'd be willing to work for him part-time. So I sent in my resume and I gave him a call and he said he'd call me back. He sort of started talking about what he was doing and he said that, you know, I've been working for over 40 years now, so he's about 60 or 70 from my guess. And he's like, I really enjoy teaching my students a lot and I really enjoy watching them grow. And then he asked me, how old are you? Just out of curiosity, he's like, that's not, I guess, very bizarre. But I was like, I'm 25. And he's like, oh, that's a lot older than what my girls usually are. And that made me stop. I was like, what do you mean, your girls? He was like, oh, just so you know, I only hire girls and they're usually between the ages of 18 and 21, so you're a lot older than I'd like. I was like, okay. And he was like, and also, you know, do you live alone? Do you live with your parents? I was like, I live alone. My parents live in a different state. He was like, okay, you should be comfortable with me touching you because I am legally blind, so you'll need to be guiding me. You need to be comfortable with sharing your life with me because I want to be family for you. Just like the other day when me and my girls were talking about like clothing and what they prefer and then the girls start talking about underwear that they prefer, I was like, 
Oh. He actually said that he talks about underwear and what underwear they prefer. Yep, and he was like, see, at this point, a lot of people will angrily slam their phones down on me, but I'm just letting you know this is the environment you're coming into, and if you don't like it, you don't have to come. That's not okay for this 60 or 70-year-old man to tell me that I have to be okay about talking about my underwear to him. Yeah. All of the women who work for him had to wear a specific type of pantyhose, a specific type of skirt, and a specific, like, button-down shirt as well. A student from my uni posted up on the Facebook page and was like, hi, guys, I've just been offered this job by the senior lawyer, and something about his conversation made me really uncomfortable. Has anyone got anything to say about this? I was one of the first few people who was like, look, I was incredibly uncomfortable with what he said to me and what he said about the underwear and stuff. And that just started an avalanche of comments. There were heaps of heaps of students who were like, yeah, once he asked me to lead him to his court bench and grab my ass the entire way there, he'd be like, oh, I'm blind. Sorry, I can't see and leaning closer to look at the documents, but would sort of be staring down her chest instead. The next woman is a young lawyer who up until recently worked as a graduate in a Brisbane firm. The ripple effects of just one instance of sexual harassment that she had from a male co-worker led this woman to move cities and indeed continents to London to escape. She reported the harassment to her firm's HR department, but the complaints seemed to fall on deaf ears. Meanwhile, the man denied all memory of the incident, adding to her frustration and feelings of guilt. He went out, had like a massive, like big night with um, the client he was seconded to and he knew where I lived and um, I'd been off sick for a few days. He had texted me to kind of like ask how I was going and like I said that I was sick kind of thing and then um, he just sent me a really strange message, like like the, the F word that was kind of garbled and like I texted back and I like corrected it to me was, is that what you want? <laughs> I was like, what? And I, my immediate reaction was, he's going to be so embarrassed on Monday. And so I like kind of texted my boyfriend, like, oh my God, like I got the weirdest message from Tim. And then around 15 minutes after I sent that message to my boyfriend, Aaron, there was buzzing. So like I lived in an apartment, like the buzzer in the apartment was just like kept going. And like, I just knew instantly that it was Tim downstairs because he knew where I lived. Um, and I just like froze and I was like, oh my God, like is my parents like woke up and they were like, what's going on? And like my mom went to the buzzer and she was like, who's this? And like I started shouting at the speaker, like, like, <laughs> like leave it alone because <laughs> it was buzzing for like 15 minutes. Keep in mind, this is like half past midnight and like eventually my dad like went downstairs and like when he walked down to like tell him to go away, like Tim like turned around, and just walked away. And then so I was really, really, really shaken by that. And like the next morning, like Tim actually sent me a follow up text message saying, well, is it? Um, mm. To which I again did not respond. And then met up with my partner and like I was this big blubbering mess. Like I don't know why Tim would send me that weird message and why he would like show up at my house. Like that's like really scary. And like, you know, he lived in the same suburb as me and I kept feeling like I was going to like bump into him and know how to go in on Monday morning and like look this guy in the face and be like, why did you try and come over to my night house? Like after saying he knew I had a boyfriend, like what part of what part of him thought that that was okay behavior Mm. like kind of like told to kind of stay away from the firm for a few days or whatever while they like conducted their investigation 
And so they kind of, um, they like interviewed me and they interviewed Tim and Tim just like a hundred percent, like point blank denied coming and doing that to me. He and, just denied um, completely coming over. Yeah. To put this in context a bit, like he was the golden boy, like he was the highest billing like lawyer in in the firm at the time, I think. All of the women I spoke to mentioned the unfairness of the fact that senior fee earners seem able to get away with this harassing behaviour so long as they're bringing the money into the firm. Everyone else will turn a blind eye. Here are some of the frustrations they expressed to me and the difficulties they faced as women reporting the behaviour to male-dominated senior ranks of their law firms. There is a very different conversation now about sexual harassment. In that instance, if someone has to go, it's a lot easier to get rid of the juniors than it is to even, you know, to contemplate getting rid of the partner. But I think it, it happens in a lot of different industries. I think it happens in hospitals. I think it happens in, in a lot of big businesses. The case of partners, if they're valuable revenue earners, they're entitled to get away with behaviour that other people aren't. That's what I find really disheartening. I found it disheartening at the time, but even in hindsight when I think back, they didn't even, as far as I could tell, they didn't even think about having a conversation with him to suggest that perhaps there were aspects of his behaviour that could be changed. Um, it really was, you know, he's the partner and he will do what he needs to do and you're the troublemaking summer clerk who's come in here and, and wanted his attention. And he has completely gotten away with it. Like, you know, he's never had to tell his girlfriend. Like, the firm hasn't really held him back in his career in any meaningful way that I know of. And um, he got this, like, really nice, like, coveted secondment to Linklater's in New York. And so I'm like, my reaction to that was, oh, like, that's really hurt his career. You know, they probably could have handled it differently and better. Like, they could have at least told me, like, what his punishment was. But, like, you know, they didn't. And I guess that's them following their processes. But, like, my partner, like, was really, like, standing and like to his credit like he just believed me straight away like I showed him the messages and I was like I think you would be hard-pressed to find a big employer that doesn't have an amazing policy what they possibly don't have is the culture that enforces that policy properly um, and and have a culture of accepting what individuals come forward and say and being willing to act on it making a complaint is actually very scary it's why only one in five people do it because it is I think the inclination, the easier path, and I don't begrudge anyone for taking it, is to say nothing because you just want it to go away. You don't want to be made to feel that way and it, it takes incredible courage to actually put words around it. It's a very hostile environment to young women. Like you have to be a particular type of person to survive and do well in that kind of environment and that type of person is like a young man basically um yeah. something that he said that like really annoys me was I was kind of like why do you why did you do that like okay whatever you keep saying you can't remember it and he was like oh maybe it's because you talked about sex all the time and I was just having this emotional response like just like someone that I had like really trusted and you know, like when you work in a firm like that, you know, we were there until like 10 almost every night. So I felt like he knew so much about me. I knew so much about him. And it just felt like this huge, like, what, what did I do to like bring this on? Like, why do I feel so bad about this? Like, I don't think he's like up at night. So like, anyway, so I, I left the firm. That is the horrendous problem that we have here. Not just the fact that this bad behavior is so prolific, but that it is managed so poorly that it ends up being, more often than not, the victim of harassment 
who leaves. When I posed a question on social media asking how common sexual harassment is in the legal industry, I received a flood of responses like this from women who had been targeted as victims. More than 10 women spoke to me, detailing behaviour that ranged from creepy to criminal. No men responded to my call-out, although the rates of victimisation are substantially lower for men, according to the IBA survey. One in two female and one in eight male lawyers are victims. About half of the women I spoke to had reported the sexual harassment to a line manager or the human resources department in their workplace. The other half were too terrified of the career repercussions. All had peers warned them not to report the situation in case whistleblowers were treated unfavourably. And studies show their fears are not unfounded. The Australian Human Rights Commission has found that one in five people who make a formal complaint about sexual harassment in their workplaces are ostracised, victimised, ignored by colleagues or resign. The International Bar Association survey that I referred to earlier found reporting was even riskier for lawyers. One in two lawyers endured an unchanged or exacerbated situation after they reported sexual harassment to superiors. 73% of the time, the perpetrator was not sanctioned at all. I spoke to Australia's Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, about why sexual harassment is occurring at such high rates in the legal profession and what strategies have been proven to work to prevent it. Kate has an interesting perspective because she had a career as a lawyer for two decades in one of Australia's big six firms. Here are the most compelling parts of our interview. Does it surprise you that lawyers, despite their knowledge of the law, are experiencing and perpetrating sexual harassment? It doesn't surprise me that lawyers are experiencing sexual harassment because the research is telling us that sexual harassment happens in every industry across this country. And in fact, the global conversation tells us that it's happening across the world. I think also it's been pretty clear lawyers like to collect data and have information. So actually in my professional career over the last 25 years in law, there have been a number of pieces of research that have consistently told us that lawyers experience sexual harassment, particularly in their first year of practice, mm. and that the experience uh, or my recollection was the experience includes from co-workers but also from senior people, but as well you have clients, you have barristers, you have contractors, you come across a whole lot of people in the course of your work that might not just be the same people in your workplace. Mm. So I think, I think why we really question lawyers, though, is we think, well, surely they know the rules. Aren't they following the rules? Um, and I think this goes to this cultural question of, power of who has authority and we know in law firms and we know at the bar the senior roles are predominantly held by men that industries have said even though it's a gender balanced industry in terms of the position of power it, there's not gender balance mm. so some of the conversation is what is the cause people want to stay in this industry even though it's a big country, it's not a huge industry, you don't want to undermine your chances, you don't want to be seen to be complaining, you want to get on, all those things add up to an environment where it's really difficult to resist 
sexual or reject it because it might affect your career. You graduated as a lawyer and worked in a large law firm for many years in your career. Kate, did you ever experience sexual harassment? Uh, I saw sexual harassment through my career like I think everyone else in the legal sector over the years involving those clients, barristers. It is part of the experience. It wasn't a barrier to my progression and it was, um, I had a great career, but I did see others experience it, that it did create a barrier for them, that it did affect who they wanted to work with and for, that it did affect which work they got uh, the opportunity to do. I asked Kate about how useful sexual harassment policies are for firms trying to prevent it. Interestingly, she said policies would go out the window if they weren't strictly enforced. January was always busy. I always had my Christmas party cases. So every year you'd have a policy, you'd get the memo at Christmas, you know, behave at the Christmas party, and then sure enough in January you get a complaint about conduct that happened that was exactly in the breach of the policy that they'd been reminded about. So what can we do? What are the things that have been shown to work to prevent sexual harassment? One of the things of the National Inquiry is to look at what's happening with the laws and their effectiveness. So I've started consultations and getting submissions. And if anyone listening to this is interested, I'd love more submissions and more perspectives. Uh, But some of the conversations we're having is really looking at a a model that might be more like OH&S, the health and safety regime, where people are employers are proactively expected to take steps, not to wait until someone complains, but they're actually meant to be actively taking steps to make sure there's no sexual harassment. One of the most repeated themes that comes up, though, is about leadership and about particularly leaders at the top being really clear about their position on expected behaviours and respect at work. At this point, it's probably necessary to raise the issue of the hashtag NotAllMen. This hashtag emerged in response to Me Too, from men who were determined not to be grouped in with other men who had harassed women. And it's true, not all men are predators, just as not all women are angels. But let's have a look at what the data says. The International Bar Association found one in two female lawyers are sexually harassed, compared to one in eight male lawyers. The Australian Human Rights Commission's National Inquiry into Sexual Harassment has also found that men across all industries are far more likely to be perpetrators than women are. The hashtag not all men is a little bit beside the point. Not all men conversation suggests that there's been a conversation saying all men are bad. And we know on sexual harassment, we do know that four out of five people harassing are men, Uh, but we also know that 26% of people experience, 26% of men have experienced sexual harassment. So that's a high rate as well. And we know that men are bystanders and men are still holding a lot of the leadership roles. So the conversation should involve men, but the idea that the conversation should be about saying, we'll leave most men alone, most are nice, is missing the sort of cultural and systemic nature of the problem of sexual harassment. 
Interestingly, the women lawyers who contacted me to share stories of sexual harassment came from very different workplaces, and although they were mostly in their 20s, some were older. They worked in government, private practice, in-house legal teams, both regionally and in cities. It became clear that sexual harassment is an issue facing lawyers in all areas and that it doesn't discriminate. The common theme seems to be power. Wherever there is a power imbalance, that's where someone becomes vulnerable. It's something I spoke to the National Head of Employment Law at Morris Blackburn, Josh Bornstein, about. How often do you see lawyers come to you with employment law issues relating to sexual harassment? It's one of the more um, clear uh, trends in the sexual harassment space that there is a distinct and steady group of clients in who suffer sexual harassment in particularly law firms, but also there's another category uh, of women who have claims against barristers. So, um, wow. yeah, so there's been... I've handled a lot of cases in the legal profession. Um, very few of them actually gone to trial right. uh, because they tend to settle, but it's an industry that um, I think has a high incidence of problematic behaviour, including bullying and sexual harassment. Definitely. And in terms of numbers, because you've said that the number of lawyers presenting to your firm have perhaps increased recently. In terms of numbers, you know, how many situations or cases come to you every, say, year and how much has that increased in the past five years? That's really hard. I don't have good data on that. I just have... Um, a sense of it, an intuitive sense of it. I think since Me Too there's been uh, an increase in women coming forward, some with recent cases but also some women seeking advice about uh, confidentiality uh, agreements they reached even a decade ago. So there's been that that, um, interesting spike and also just I think more women deciding they can come forward and should come forward. So do you think Me Too has had a positive effect on um, giving women more um, confidence to speak out? Definitely more encouragement. I think it's had a positive effect in terms of putting the the problem up in lights. I've been conscious every time I settle a case on confidential terms that it remains under the radar um, and that the, the extent of the problem is never going to be understood with all these confidentiality arrangements. So... Mm. The fact that some of it's now become very public, I think, at least allows us to get a better understanding of how widespread the problem is. In terms of the kinds of behaviour, what are some of the bad end of the scale of some of the behaviour of sexual harassment that you've seen? So the the most extreme is rape. Uh, wow. Rape at a at a work event. Wow. Um, that's the worst, but I've dealt with the full gamut. I didn't think when I went to law school I would be wading through, um, if you'll excuse the language, dick pics of partners in law firms sent by <laughs> yeah. text message to um, to staff. I didn't think I would be... I don't be, think any of us would. No, I didn't think that would be part of my job. Um, so a lot of stuff about pornography, um, attempting to push the woman's head into the partner's crotch... Um, the full gamut mm. of... Um, and what kind of relationship do, 
does power have in the situations? Like, is it often a powerful partner or senior victimising a younger or less powerful woman? It tends to be, yes. Yeah. It tends to be, um, in the majority of cases, that's the that's the dynamic. You've got yeah. someone pretty senior, male, and a subordinate female. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the, you know, in workplaces where there is that uh, structure. Hierarchy. Hierarchy, then you're going to get more cases of sexual harassment. Anytime... Uh, there is a campaign that seeks social change, that seeks to change uh, the dynamic between genders, to seek to change the distribution of power in society and in workplaces. There's going to be uh, a response and some form of resistance. If you're going to struggle for social change and make advances, you're going to cop a lot of resistance. So at the heart of it, it's really a gender equality debate, really. In my view, yes. It's not a, there's only so much that can happen in workplaces. The struggle is really about um, not just what goes on in workplaces, what goes on right throughout our economy and our society. That concludes the second episode of Off the Record, a podcast series to shine light on dark issues in the legal profession. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for upcoming episodes which will investigate other taboo topics in law. If you like the series or if you have ideas for other episodes, you can reach me, Kate Allman, on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook or tune into the Law Society of New South Wales social media accounts on Twitter and Facebook. You can also email us at offtherecord at lawsociety.com.au. You've been listening to Off the Record, a podcast produced by LSJ with So Savvy Productions.